Welcome back. All right, yeah, it is great to be back in the flesh. Um, kind of, it's kind of our home away from home, so it's great. Uh, it has been uh, a great experience to stare into like this black hole lens for the last year and a half and like hope that it gets to you. But it is far better to be here in person and be with you. And you actually caught me in the middle of a sabbatical, uh, which is great. So this is the only time I'm preaching for the next four months. You're welcome, yeah? Um, so so thank, I'm glad that it was here, that, that I could do that. Uh, I didn't know what kind of like sabbatical Dustin was going to look like. I didn't know if I was going to show up and just have Crocs on and like a tunic, just kind of braid my male, male pattern baldness at the back or something. Or, but anyway, here I am looking, looking half decent. Um, and it is something that I've been reflecting on a lot over my sabbatical and just looking at rest, looking at what it means to actually rest and be restful. And if any of us have been paying attention at all to our interior lives over the last year and a half, there's a lot of angst. There's been a lot of reasons for anxiety. There's been a lot of things that have kind of pushed up against what we would normally see as objects for rest. And what I've noticed in my own interior life, and specifically in some of the people that I pastor and lead and care for, is I've seen a struggle, a struggle to rest well. And there's lots of reasons right now I think that it's challenging and especially hard to rest. With the never-ending changes and the extra reasons for anxiety and this disruption of everything that's normal and all the question marks of the unknowns and, and then compound that with some of the added kind of like polarization and tribalism on every topic because we're safe at our keyboards behind our digital screens and not actually with each other. And so that distancing between each other and relationships has also added tension to some of those relationships, and it's affected us in the church and outside the church. And I've been reflecting a lot on something that the fourth century African church father, St. Augustine, said very famously, he said that to God, he said, you have made us for yourself, and that we are restless until our heart finds rest in you. And I think that's especially true today. And we see that outside the church, just people who study culture are seeing, the experts are saying that our cultural moment can actually be defined by restlessness. That's not a good kind of banner across our generation, right? Of like, what is this generation known for? Restlessness. That's not a good look for us. Doesn't lead to a lot of health, right? Doesn't lead to a lot of um, productivity and, and progress like we would want it to. Uh, millennials, I know millennials get a hard, hard rap, um, I'm, I'm a millennial, believe it or not. I don't have the haircut of one, but I just made it in. I just squeaked in. I'm like the older millennial. But millennials are called the burnout generation. And there's good reasons for that. And that leads to an alarming amount of physical and, and emotional exhaustion, mental health issues, relational strains everywhere. Now, why is this the case? Culturally, in our society, why is this happening and why now? Well, I think there's lots of different layers to this. But I want to locate us so that hopefully some of us who are feeling this sense of restlessness can kind of like locate ourselves in some of these things and, and really identify what the symptoms of our own restlessness are so that we can understand Jesus' invitation to come and actually rest in him. And what's beautiful about scripture and beautiful about what Jesus encapsulates is that I think that if there was one word I would use of Jesus to describe his posture and his temperament, it would be well-rested. I think Jesus was the most well-rested human being ever to walk the earth because everything was just humbled under God. There was no striving anymore. 
to become something or someone because his identity was already given to him by who the Father said he is. There's something that we can see in that and who Jesus is. But I want to locate us first and see some of the symptoms of this and why there's kind of these multiple layers of this restlessness that we, we seem to be experiencing. Culturally, we're definitely overworking and undersleeping. We're over busy and underfulfilled. We're overstimulated and underrested. We're overstressed and undersatisfied. And I think there's something that underlies all of this, and that is a sermon of our culture. There's something that gets preached at you and I all the time, and it's this sermon of progress. It's this sermon of achievement. It's this sermon of accomplishment, of influencing, of, of always pursuing more and better, right? It's always coming at us. It's always being preached at us from every media that we follow. And what happens is in this sermon of progress, we end up deferring fulfillment and satisfaction because the next thing is always coming. So when we defer satisfaction, when we defer fulfillment, we also defer rest. You with me on that? Because we can't rest until we reach that thing. And so if this progressive thing that just kind of floats under the surface of my heart is what pushes me to achieve and accomplish and more and better, it's always something that's deferred to the future. It's always as soon as I reach that stage of life, as soon as I get married, as soon as I graduate from that, as soon as I get this raise, as soon as I get this house. And it's when we defer fulfillment that we actually defer rest. And the Bible shows up and it commands us to rest now. That's very countercultural for us because right away we're flooded with reasons why we can't rest yet. Why there's so much more to do or there's so much more that I can accomplish and achieve. And some of the experts are identifying symptoms of this like workaholism and nonstop activities and busy bodiness, right? Is that we just can't stop working and cleaning and shopping and running errands and clicking and streaming and consuming and posting and liking and following. It just never stops. There's always something that we, we are doing. It's nonstop activity. And we can't slow down. And we can't stop. And when we do stop, we either feel guilty or afraid. Anybody? Like when you do actually try to get still, turn everything off, like there's this thing, I know it's weird, but on your phone, there's like this, this button. It's on the side, usually. If you hold it, the thing turns off. Like, like off, like off. Like, not do not disturb, not hibernating, not sleep mode. Like, off, right? But when we try to do that in our interior lives, and we try to just turn off, we quickly have that vacuum filled with either guilt or, or fear. So we end up multitasking all the time, and experts show us that multitasking is a myth. I don't know if you knew that. So when you're, like, folding laundry and watching that Netflix episode and trying to listen to that podcast at the same time, none of those things are going well. Your shirt's wrinkled, you're not tracking with the show, and that podcast is in one ear and out the other. You can't multitask. We actually need to be able to focus and be present in the moment and throw our whole self at things in order to do them well. Experts also have identified an emotional numbness that comes with this. Just an inability to feel. Highs and lows, but then also this kind of uncomfortable middle we just can't seem to have an emotional maturity, the dashboard of our life, like the emotional feelings dashboard of our life is just out of whack. We end up with a low capacity to kind of feel. And in this last year and a half, we've had lots of reasons that this has actually been intensified 
because we don't even know how to empathize anymore with other people who maybe think differently than us, vote differently than us, believe differently than us, or have different views of things that are not controversial at all, like vaccines or masks, amen? But because we haven't been able to be together, our emotional dashboard is all out of whack and we aren't able to actually empathize and walk alongside one another. We're struggling to do that. And our heart ends up breeding kind of apathy and a lack of understanding. Experts also talk about escapism. You know, we've all joked about like the COVID-20, right? Just kind of the extra spare tire that some of us have put on. But this kind of escapism of whether it's overeating or overdrinking or oversleeping or undersleeping or binge watching or endless scrolling, we end up stuck in a negative feedback loop that maybe we don't even like. You with me on that? Like, it's not like we like that. Like, you know when Netflix asks you if you're still watching? That's like God's sign to you. And it's just kind of like, are you still watching? And you're like, no. But, but you are, and then you're just, you just feel disgusting. It's like God's way of like providentially offering us grace in the middle of our binging, right? But we're stuck in negative feedback loops, and we don't even know how to get out of them. We don't even like that we are in them, but it leaves us with this emotional numbness and this, these behaviors of escapism. And last but not least, for us as followers of Jesus, if you are a Christian, it also affects us in our spiritual disciplines and our spiritual health. We end up with kind of a lackluster life of spiritual practices if we practice them at all. Things like silence and solitude and quiet. Things like study and reading and meditating on God's word. Things like community, although that's been tough, but fighting to actually be with one another in the flesh like we get to today. Prayer, our life of prayer gets lost in just a whirlwind of busyness and emotional angst. And we end up thinking that our life as Christians is more about doing things for God instead of being with God. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, The Holy Longing, said that we are actually distracting ourselves into a spiritual oblivion. He goes on to say that we are more busy than bad and we're more distracted than non-spiritual. And he goes on and talks about something that he sees in the lives of Christians, that we have a pathological busyness. He said, we don't even know it's there. We're just pathologically busy. And a busy life and a distracted life and a life that is pulled in all sorts of directions cannot be rested and humbled under the hand of God. So today, Pastor Ed allowed me to kind of sidestep some of the stuff that you've been doing in the series that you've been in to just share a little bit about this because I think that this is something that the Lord has put on my heart and I think that it's something that we're all feeling. And I want us to understand Jesus' invitation to actually rest in him. So here's my question to us. What impact could the church have on our burned out and restless culture if we actually were a well-rested community of people truly settled under God? What witness would we have about our God? What would it say about our God if we were actually a community of well-rested people? Not, not lazy people, not people who are, are inactive, but people who are active about the right things. But understand that we work from our relationship with God, not for it. And that we are actually humbled by because we're settled under the hand of God. What would it look like? How could we change the spaces that we find ourselves in? What would your workplace look like? What would your friendships look like? What would your household look like if we actually practiced rhythms so that we could cultivate hearts that were well-rested under God? 
Okay, so I just want you to dream a little bit as we look at Hebrews 4 and see what Hebrews says about this. Now, Hebrews is an awesome New Testament book that is all about showing us that the Old Covenant was good. The Old, old Covenant was awesome, right? Moses and Joshua and David, they were good. The Old Covenant was awesome. But all of that only pointed us forward to what? Well, the true Moses, the true Joshua, the true David who is coming in Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king. And so the whole letter to the Hebrews is trying to just really get into this deep Old Testament kind of Hebrew stuff to show us that all of that was just a shadow to the substance that was coming in the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews is very excited to kind of like cast light on some of those motifs and some of those themes throughout the Old Covenant. Watch what it says in Hebrews 4. Read a few verses and skip around a little bit. Watch. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, so every time you see rest, enter Sabbath, the word Sabbath, Entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us should have seemed to fail to reach it, to get into that rest. For good news, the gospel, came to us, just as to them, previous generations, but the message that they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter into that rest, as he once said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my, re my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Skip forward a little bit later in the chapter. Going back to Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest in the wilderness after the Exodus, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, because of this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Underline that, highlight it, double tap it. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. See the oxymoron there? That we actually have to work to get into that rest? We'll get there in a second. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of your heart and mine. And no creature, no one on planet earth, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account. Now there's a lot of stuff packed in there. But what I love about these verses what I love is that verse 12 and 13 at the end, we usually use those verses to talk about the nature of the word of God, right? Some of you have coffee mugs with that verse on it. It's like, yeah, active, two-edged sword. I love it. But notice that it just came fresh off of the heels of talking about rest. Church, could it be that we show how much we trust God's word by how well we rest? Could it be that we show that we truly do trust in the active, living power of God's word by the measure of which we rest well under his hand. That's the connection that's happening here. That's the connection that is happening in this text that we have to see. This author for us in Hebrews is unpacking the failure of a previous generation so that we can learn and not make the same mistake. And you know, if we're kind of transported all the way back to the wilderness, right? Back to Joshua, the generation who was able to actually walk into Canaan, into the promised land after the Exodus, after God showed up to his enslaved people, rescued them where they couldn't rest because they were slaves and took them out into a land where they could rest again. So he transports us back to that generation. But do you guys know the story, right? God shows up, he rescues them, gives them new commands, not to enslave them, but to free them. 
And then what happens? Well, ultimately, they fail to trust in those promises again. And the people of God just wander, right? The whole Old Testament could just be summed up in a whole bunch of wilderness, right? Just continuously exile and wandering. Exile and wandering. And the warning here in this text is by transporting us back to the wilderness and then even further back into the garden, if you notice the, the wording at the end about being naked and, and ashamed of being with God and resting in him, that's language from Genesis. The author is pulling on all these threads to bring us back so that we can learn from previous generations and rest well. And if you remember Genesis 1 through 3, there's something beautiful about rest being the entire point of creation. Like I know we've done weird stuff with Genesis because we're thousands of miles away and thousands of years removed from the original context. But if there's anything that Genesis is doing, the entire point of creation is rest. The entire climax of Genesis and the creation narrative is rest. It starts with God, fully rested, totally at peace. Everything is in order. And then he begins to speak and bring about order in things that are new. And he assigns function and order to all things that are. And then beauty happens. And then what does he say? He steps back and he says, it's all good. So before all good was like a 90s hip-hop mantra, it was in Genesis. The Bible's good, amen? But he stepped back, he looked at it, and he was like, man, this is all good. Like, look how good all of this is. And then it ends with what? God resting. Why? Why is that in there? I'll tell you why it's not. It's not because he was tired, right? <laughs> all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-powerful God was not tired after the work of creation. The significance of Genesis there and God resting as the climax of the creative moment is that God actually now takes up residence within creation and rests. He moves into the neighborhood. He makes himself available and he rests after furnishing the cosmos, after furnishing all creation, he comes and he rests to say, I'm here. I'm available. If you remember from Sunday school, day seven leaves out a very important thing that happens in the first six days of Genesis. You remember what it is? It's that little sentence that said, there was morning and there was evening. That's left out of day seven. Why? Well, because from the invitation, the invitation in the first pages of the Bible is that that Sabbath rest didn't end and it's still available to you and I. There wasn't evening and morning. It didn't end because day seven is the Sabbath rest that God is inviting each of us into because he makes himself available and draws near. In the very first pages of our Bible, we have a God who is fully rested, fully restful, inviting us into Sabbath rest. Now, what does this mean? Well, in Hebrew, the word Sabbath means stop. Just stop. To, to rest from something that is normal, right? Work is normal, amen? Like Monday's coming, <laughs> okay? Work is normal, but Sabbath is special. So there's a stopping from what's normal. There's a ceasing from what's, what's normal to then focus on delighting in something that's not normal. That's what Sabbath looks like. So it means that you and I, for our Sabbath rest to happen, it means we, we actually intentionally stop working. We, we stop desiring. We stop wishing. We stop dreaming. We stop worrying. We stop binging. We stop scrolling. We stop planning. And we, we rest. What's really crazy is that I think Sabbath rest, we're so bad at it. Like, I mean, I'm talking about us now. Like, we're so bad at this because I think Sabbath rest steps on every single idol of our culture. It steps on the idol of productivity. 
It steps on the idol of influence, of achievement, of money, and getting mine, and crushing it, whatever that means. It steps on every bit of ambition. So our culture doesn't practice it, and then by virtue of that, we as Christians have turned Sabbath rest into something that we kind of just, I don't know, like I'll do it on a Wednesday for like a half hour while I eat my deli sandwich, right? You're like, no, no, but, but, but there's something much deeper, much more serious about the call to enter into a Sabbath rest. And the word Sabbath in Hebrew doesn't just mean stop, it also means delight. And so if you want to think about Sabbath rest as an intentional time to stop in order to delight, it's the opposite of troubleshooting, right? Problem solving, like none of that anymore. No more troubleshooting, no more problem solving at all. We get to just rest and delight. And if you remember Genesis again, the week actually starts with Sabbath, right? It actually starts with Sabbath. I know we think about Monday as like our work week, but actually Sunday is the first day of the week. Every week starts with rest. That's intentional. And more than that, every day starts with rest. If you go back and read Genesis, you'll notice that it talks about that there was night and then there was day. There was evening, then there was morning. Not there was morning, then there was evening, right? Most of us, our day starts when we wake up. When we wipe the crusties from our eyes, we get over, we brush our teeth. It's like, okay, you're starting to kind of be sanctified a little bit, right? You get to that glor glory, glorious cup of coffee, which makes you a Christian again within like 20 minutes, right? And then you go about your day. That's what we think about as the beginning of our day. But biblically, the day starts at night, which is pretty wild. That means that your day starts by your head hitting the pillow. That your day starts accomplishing nothing. Your day starts with you checking nothing off your to-do list. Are you with me on that? Your day and mine starts with our head on the pillow, snoozing, snoring, and drooling because God is still sustaining the entire cosmos. You do nothing to protect yourself at night. You do nothing to guarantee that you are going to open your eyes the next morning, yet God sustains you because he's a God of rest. It's all right there in the first pages of Scripture. And then humanity shows up and God gives them a job. He says, cultivate, be fruitful, multiply. Go and take this garden that's just teeming with life and, and just go crazy and make it produce more. But on your first day of work, guess what you're going to do? You're going to rest. That's a sweet job. Amen? Like you get a new job, you get a new boss. Day six in creation, you're like, here we are. We've got our mandate. We're going to go be fruitful and multiply. First day of work, day seven, you're going to rest. Just come and hang out. Let's, let's relax. That's a good God. That's a good job. That's a good call. And we see that right in the first pages of our Bible. But we know how the story goes. Humanity doesn't rest there. Doesn't rest well. Doesn't stay in the garden. Humanity rebels from resting in God and pursues rest apart from God. Amen? That's what happens. They define what is good and right and true and beautiful for themselves instead of trusting in God's definition of what is right and good and beautiful and true. And then the whole Bible, if you just keep going, the whole Bible is just people wandering in the desert, wandering in the wilderness, trying to find rest. Like, it's going to be hot today, right? They're saying like 40 degrees or something. Now go outside and, and just think about how many times the Psalms begs for a tree with shade. Remember, these were desert people, right? Like, so many times, the whole Bible, they're just trying to get back to the garden. They're trying to get back to the shade and the cool of the day to walk with God. They're trying to get back to somewhere where they can just be quenched of their thirst for getting home because they're wandering. 
That's the whole story of the Bible. And it's as if Scripture is screaming at you and I, church, that if we do not practice rest in God, we will be forced to wander. And a lot of us feel like we're wandering. And a lot of us are. And we've been resisting this rest since the garden. The first sin, when sin enters the picture, it's not a moral breach only. It's not a relational breach only. Those are kind of the after effects of the deeper issue, the root issue. The first sin in Scripture is looking for rest in everything but God. And if there's anything that defines our cultural moment, it's that. It's the lie from the garden that we can be like God, that we think ourselves as limitless and all-powerful and all-knowing. We just got to tap into the power that is already us and belonging to us and live your truth and mine, and that is what will give us rest. And I got news for you, it's not working. It's killing us. God weaves rest into the fabric of creation, and to resist it or to ignore it is to actually work against the grain of who we are. Like, like you and I will short-circuit eventually because we're not self-made. We're not self-sufficient. And the only thing called holy in the days of creation is Sabbath. That's got to like jump right off the page for us. The only thing actually deemed holy in the Genesis work is Sabbath rest. That's crazy. And then you fast forward throughout Scripture. Hebrews does a good job showing us this, but you fast forward. And God doesn't just invite us into rest, but in Exodus, if you know in the Ten Commandments, God does what? Well, he commands rest. Like this God actually commands us to rest. That's a sweet deal. And some of you need to hear that because some of you still think that God commands you to work for some type of acknowledgement or grace and love and acceptance, but God's here going, no, 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 I'm going to command you to rest because you need to understand that who you are does not come from what you can do for me, but that who you are truly comes from what I am doing on your behalf. That's what rest tells us. And God commands us to rest. In the Ten Commandments, in the Fourth Commandment, we see a command to rest. And the reason why I think it's the Fourth Commandment is because the Fourth Commandment to rest is how we practice the first three commandments. Stay with me. The first three commandments of don't have any other gods before me, don't worship anything more than me, don't put anything in my way, don't worship idols and exchange them for me, and don't misuse my name. Don't attribute my name to things that don't belong to me. Sabbath rest is how we practice all three of those. So the fourth commandment comes along, and it's the only commandment that actually gets an explanation. That's pretty crazy. A little bit of homework. Go to Exodus 20 this week and read it. Watch how long the description of the fourth commandment is compared to the rest. It's the only commandment that gets a why, that gets a why explanation. It's the only commandment that actually gets a footnote of, here's why this is super important. And God doesn't usually waste words, so when we see that kind of thing pop up in Scripture, it's very important to pay attention. And a little bit later in Deuteronomy, it repeats it all over again. But it ties rest not to creation, but it ties it to redemption. And this is really important. That in Deuteronomy, rather than tie it to creation, the seventh day of rest, in Deuteronomy, rest is actually tied to redemption, the work that God has done on our behalf to save us. Watch what Deuteronomy 5.15 says. Remember that you were a slave. In Egypt, and the Lord is the one who brought you out with a mighty hand, with his power, with his strength. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. Like usually when you hear that, when God's like, remember I did that, I brought you out, therefore obey me, right? 
Therefore, do what I told you to. But instead, remember what I did for you. Go back to the side of the road that day where I moved on you and moved into your heart and changed you and called you to myself. Remember that day. Like we just sang songs about freedom from sin. Remember the day that I gave you freedom from sin. Remember all that. Now rest. Now rest in me. The shift there is so vital because it's a shift from rooting rest in creation to now in the exodus. And it's God saying, you're free, now live free. And I think, church, we resist this kind of rest because it's God's way of dethroning us. Anybody like that? Anybody like feeling humbled and dethroned? No, me neither. But this is what rest does. Sabbath rest dethrones us and it re-enthrones God. It invites us to step off the throne of our life and actually trust him for who he is and trust his work. It's a great reversal of what sin does, whereas sin dethrones God and enthrones self, Sabbath rest shows up and invites us to get off the throne of our life and invite God to his rightful place as the king of our life. It's beautiful. You don't have endless energy, and it's okay. <laughs> You're not central, and that's, it's okay. You're not all-sufficient, and that's, that's okay. You're not all-knowing, and that's okay. And Sabbath rest is just this beautiful reminder that God does not need us for anything, but he does want us. And that's just the gospel. And it changes everything. So how can we respond to this? How can we understand this well instead of just kind of thinking of it like, oh, I, I know a little bit about Sabbath. Like it used to be this old religious thing. It's like, no, 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 no. If we don't actually understand what Sabbath rest is biblically, we will never actually be, be able to experience the life that God has freed us to in him. And Sabbath rest is the weekly reminder that Jesus is Lord and you and I are not. Amen? Like a weekly reminder, not like once every year where you like really feel it, whatever that is, right? Like every week, a specific 24-hour period of time for God to remind you that you are not God and that we can allow him to be. And listen to me, I think that if you struggle to actually take a full day to rest, it might be because you are afraid that you will be shown, you will be shown to be non-central. I think Sabbath rest is hard for narcissists. I think it's impossible for a narcissist. And our whole culture is built on the idol of self and narcissism. So resting is very hard for people today in our culture and us because of the false gospel of self-actualization, of self-empowerment, of self-accomplishment, because it relies on being needed. It relies on being somebody. And the gospel comes and reverses all of that and, and invites us to rest in the fact that we are nobody. And God calls us somebody, and that's the only thing that matters. And rest is how we practice that. Rest is how we reapply that to our heart. So I know this is kind of strange for most of us because it isn't something that we actually like work into our weekly rhythm. But this kind of rest really cultivates humility. Uh, Ed Welch, he's a Christian counselor and psychologist, written a ton of books. He said that humility is a posture of living life under, settled under God. And I think that's what rest does where it invites us to not strive anymore, to not force things, to not assert ourselves, to not control things or produce things, to not be caught up with our self-image or being better or being awesome or how, how much attention we can get. It allows us to actually rest and live life settled under God. So how do we respond to this? Here's a few things that we can take away today 
and respond well to this. This is to kind of answer the question I started with was what would it look like if we were actually a community, like a countercultural community of well-rested people? What would that look like? What would it say about our God to our culture who's just so restless? Well, first of all, we need to actually practice this. Amen? Anybody nailing this yet? And you're just like, Dustin, I could have preached this. This is really good, but get out of the way. Watch this, right? We're not nailing this, and the evidence is just so clear. But we actually need to practice. Why? Well, because restlessness is our default. If something's our default, we've got to work twice as hard. And notice that Hebrews actually says we strive to enter that rest because we actually need to be intentional. But what does it look like to carve out margin for resting, to actually rest, to actually practice this? You know, all forms of practice is just preparation, right? Anything we practice is because we're preparing for something. And that's the same thing for this. If we want to prepare to not be as restless as we are, we have to actually practice rest. And it takes work, and it takes intentionality, and it, it takes making it a habit. It takes making it a rhythm and actually prioritizing it. And today, it's much harder to rest than ever before because there's just this nonstop blinking and pinging and notifications and, oh, you missed, you missed this show and you missed this post, and, right? Everything's viral and everything's urgent, right? Everything is. But it's not true. We can rest. Secondly, we have to understand that Sabbath rest is for us, but it's not, it's not about us. Your idea of rest probably is wrong. You with me on that? Rest, be, resting is different than relaxing, amen? Relaxing is different, like me time and like a spa day. Like those are different than resting this way. And in Mark 2, Jesus says that. He says that Sabbath was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning it was a gift to us. That Sabbath is for us, but it's actually holy unto the Lord because it's about him. And so whatever you can do for 24 hours to cut out all distractions that would not stir more affections and adoration in your heart to God, that's what Sabbath rest looks like for you. So I don't know what it looks like for you. For us as a family, for the last year and a half, we've been practicing family Sabbath. And like we literally put our phones down and off, and then we just do all sorts of non-digital activities together. Right? Anything analog, it's like board games, and we dance, and we sing, and we cook, and we walk, and we go to the beach, and we pull worms out of the ground, and we, like we just do all sorts of hands-on analog things. And it has been crazy. And sometimes we, we just, we don't, right? We just turn a movie on because it's like that's what we're going to do for Family Sabbath this week, right? So we cheat sometimes. But most weeks, I'm telling you, the kids, our kids, are running. Kids don't know any, any day, right? They don't know what time it is. They don't know what day it is. They just, they're kids. It's like Tuesday morning. Some of my kids will run into the study and they'll go, Dad, is it Family Sabbath today? It's like, no, it's Tuesday, bro. Oh, they'll walk out. But when it's Friday, and Friday at sundown comes, and family Sabbath starts, they know that for 24 hours we are present. That we are fully present. No one can call me. No one can text me. No one can get me with urgent things. For 24 hours, we're just practicing rest. And church, I'm telling you, it has radically, radically changed the way that we are actually able to operate the rest of our week. So if there's anything I can encourage in us, this does take practice, but you have to be intentional about what it looks like for you. So whether it's walking or journaling or reading or dancing or singing or stop singing or, or eating or that cup of tea or that cup of coffee or that cup of fermented grain or fruit or whatever your thing is, whatever it is for you that would actually allow you to just kind of have that glorious adoration of who God is, that is where we must rest. 
Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann said that in our contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath is an act of both resistance and alternative. Sabbath is an act of trust in the subversive God, an act of submission to a restful God, an act of submission. So Jesus' invitation in this is that we would actually find an alternative way to live, that we would resist the normal rhythms of everything being urgent, everything pressing in on us, that we would be able to turn off and actually sit down and that we would rest. So I want to finish and close with something that Pastor Ed talked about last week, but it's from Matthew 11. It's Jesus' invitation to you and I this morning. Watch this. Are you tired? Listen to Jesus' tenderness here. Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. Come and do life with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Do any of us need this today? Need to respond to Jesus' invitation to actually turn from all other objects of rest, all other counterfeit offers of rest and actually turn and have our rest in him. See, whereas culture can only offer you and I temporary distractions, Jesus doesn't give us temporary distractions. He gives us an eternal hope and rest that can be experienced right now, right here. And I think this is exactly why Jesus does most of his healings on the Sabbath. (laughs) Why? Well, because there's certain types of healing that you and I need that can only happen. There's certain types of renewal that you and I need that can only happen when we rest well. Stand with me. Let me pray for us to that end as we respond to this invitation. Father, we're so thankful that you are a God who does work for us. There's nothing we can do to impress you or disappoint you because you're not looking for us to hold you up at all. So thankful that it is through the gospel and the work of your son that we are sons and daughters. That that is where we start. We start from the place of being adopted sons and daughters and then we get to work from that. And I pray for all of us who are weary and tired. We're restless. There's so many things that could cause us anxiety and angst and worry and fear. I pray that that would be silenced now and that the invitation to rest in you would just burn into the front of our mind and to our heart and that as we do that, we would be forever changed. That you would empower us to practice this well starting this week, that we would go and we would actually invite you to that as we respond to the invitation that you offer us to rest in you. We love you so much and we thank you for this. Thank you for the work that you have done for us on our behalf because of your great love for us. We ask these things in the only name that matters, in Jesus' name.